We nearly were packing up as a group. I'd got a job, thinking the group was finished. George and John came to this place where I was working. They came and they said, oh, we've got some gigs, you know. So uh, I hopped over the wall and never went back. Yesterday, but only announced the venue five hours before. 250 fans got in free to see him play the place that helped make the Beatles. It's not going to happen again, is it? So, you know, this is your last chance, really, to see, to see Macadere, so... Working for a mother today. Does your boss know? Oh, yes. Does now? Yeah, he does. We assume John Lennon's sister was on the guest. Uh, you must think of John at times like this as well. Of course I do. Of course I do. And I think Paul will be thinking of John as well. We've got a ticket to ride! Many camped out all night at the cavern, making a mad dash across town at nine this morning when Sir Paul's Twitter said tickets would go first come, first served at the Echo Arena. around the city. I was here when the queues were here this morning uh, and they were told, you know, there's no tickets from here and it was, it was like a scene out of Hard Day's Night. A film with us running across the streets down to the arena. Only the first 110 people managed to get them. An old one down here to get but a once in a lifetime. Am I late for work or anything? I'm actually late for work, yeah. But I'm not really that bothered too much. <laughs> I got a ticket. I got a ticket. It was amazing. Chance of a lifetime. <laughs> Absolutely. Overwhelmed, overjoyed. Delighted, couldn't believe it. Oh, super, super fans. We follow Paul all over the world. I have these tattoo of the Beatles, and I also have this one of the signature of Paul McCartney. You're shaking. Yes. I can't believe it. Like, yes, I've seen him like four times before, but this is a cabin club. This is something else. It's like 250, the biggest artist of all time, and he's playing the cabin club, and I managed to get a ticket. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This is widescreen podcasting, and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Of course, I am your host Sam Wiles. Thank you all for downloading. I hope you're all well, safe and sound, and that you've all had a lovely Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Winter Solstice, Diwali, Chinese New Year, and festive period in general. Of course, this is our first post-McCartney 3 episode. I hope you've all been listening to the album, been digesting it, and that, most importantly, all of you have had your copies delivered. 
I know we're all experiencing the hype and the shell shock, the fallout from this album, but we've got to keep a level head and not do what I did when Egypt Station came out and declare it either the best or worst album ever. We won't know for years whether McCartney 3 is actually a good album, so in the meantime, let us crack on with today's show. Hey everyone, Sam here. Just a quick interruption to today's proceedings. I never realised how fucking long the intro segment for this episode is. I know a lot of you out there get quite irritated when I don't cut quite to the chase. So today I'm going to be debuting some timestamps. I'm just going to announce them here and they will be down below. The housekeeping lasts until 34 minutes and 10 seconds, at which point I start the background conversation and then my interview with Paul Dugdale himself starts at 40 minutes and 30 seconds if you want to skip ahead. Why are we here today? Well, on Christmas Day in the year 2020, BBC One here in the UK broadcast Paul McCartney's 2018 concert film, Paul McCartney Live, ellipses, at the Cavern Club. It was shown at quarter to midnight, which technically also meant it ran over into Boxing Day as well. But folks, this isn't any old review of this concert special. Originally, I was just going to have this as part of our bumper, extra-large McCartney 3 summary episode that I'm working on in the shadows. But rather fortunately, I received an email that meant we're going to have a little exclusive for you folks here on Paul or Nothing, as I will be speaking with the director of Paul McCartney Live Ellipses at the Cavern Club. One, Mr. Paul Dugdale. Yes, folks, we have another filmmaker here on this podcast. And fuck me, do we ever have some ever so interesting behind the scenes chit chat for you lot here today? I'm not going to do the joke. If you haven't seen this gig, it is available on BBC iPlayer and YouTube right now. I would suggest you go and watch it before listening to this episode as not only is it really good, (laughs) spoiler alert for my review later, but it'll also give a bit more context to this chat you know but yeah Paul Dugdale what an absolute joy to have on this podcast I know you're all gonna love the conversation we had together we cover both Paul and the gig yes but also his illustrious career with the likes of the Rolling Stones and Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande his insights were just so revealing like it seems that no one who works with Paul who collaborates him who surrounds him is able to escape a all-time greatest, you know, lifetime story through their work with him, you know. Of course, I did film at university as well. I don't mention that in the interview at all because that would be the most self-centred thing ever and, you know, my qualification at Wolverhampton University really doesn't qualify to anything Paul's done. But, of course, I was so excited to have him on. Not only because he's worked with Paul, yes, but just because... He's a big fucking guy in the film industry, you know. It might not be the best time for film right now, but Paul's back catalogue, his filmography, his IMDb list was pretty daunting to say the least. And I was quite nervous about this one and I'm glad it went as well as it did. He was an incredibly kind and gracious chap to come on the show. It was just another one of those, you know, one in a million chance emails that you send off not really expecting anything in return, and then bam, within 24 hours, we had the whole thing recorded. After the housekeeping, you are going to hear that interview, but just before I do play that for you, I'm going to quickly go through the backstory of this gig, and then after said interview with Mr. Dugdale, I'll be giving my own thoughts on the concert film. So, stick around for that. 
Anyway, there are a couple of long emails today, so let's just crack on with the housekeeping. Okay, what have we got in terms of news today? Well, first and foremost, and most importantly of all, around 2pm on Christmas Day, it was announced officially that McCartney 3 secured the Christmas number one album slot position here in the UK with a combined sales of 25,000 total for both downloads and physical products together. Boom! Suck my dick, modern so-called relevant acts. My boy Paul McCartney at the age of 78 is back where he belongs, at the top of the charts. Respect it, you know? This news made me extra happy, of course, because at that time, he wasn't number one in the US, and I was very much hoping for an exclusive number one here in the UK to uh, show our superiority in that sense. And I both did and didn't get that in the end, because, of course, we had a couple of controversies, the first being Taylor Swift's Evermore, which came out on the same day as McCartney 3, which, as we know now, was only because... Uh, of the one-week delay brought on by a lot of the coloured vinyl and merch, it is now reported that Swift purposely was going to release her album on the 18th, which should have left Paul free to dominate the charts on the 11th. But, you know, case rasa that didn't happen. The second controversy was the fact that Eminem, a.k.a. Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. The Real Slim Shady, also dropped an album on December 18th titled Music To Be Murdered By Side B. Like his last few albums, this was a surprise drop with no previous announcement. Though it's not actually a new album per se, it's a deluxe re-release of the last album with 16 new tracks. Damn, Egypt Station, Traveller's Edition, eat your heart out, you know what I mean? In the US... In the final Billboard 200 album charts, McCartney 3 was sadly obliterated by Taylor Swift's Evermore, which is fine by me, because, you know, number one in the UK only, UK podcaster, that makes me feel good inside in a way that I can't quite explain. Is it lazy? Probably. But yeah, McCartney 3 and Music To Be Murdered By, Side B, both currently sit at a joint second in the US Billboard charts because McCartney 3 has about 58,000 physical sales in the US and Eminem has many hundreds of thousands of downloads which all in all uh, around 150 streams is a song sale and, and about 1,500 streams is an album sale so you know if you do the math that shows the spending power of legacy artist uh, album buyers and collectors you know all of Eminem's fans they're just going to download the album and just pay their Spotify account whereas with me with many of you Paul's fans are going to buy multiple physical expensive copies of this album on outdated media platforms you know the grey pound strikes again shall we say and thankfully that was recognised by other charts not all was lost as it was announced around a week later that whilst he hadn't cracked the US Billboard Top 200, he still did top the US Billboard album charts, um, i.e. the highest number of physical units sold, you know, apparently one of the highest ever since the category was even created, and as a bonus, he also topped the US rock album charts. Great success, everyone, you know, you did it, through buying all of your multiple editions and bowing down to the Paul McCartney MPL 
capital capitalist money-making machine and through our sacrifice and questionable desire to have different bits of coloured vinyl, we proved that we as a fan base are not to be fucked with and that radio stations should bloody well play some Paul McCartney every once in a while, you know? This is such good news, isn't it? You know, not, not just for me as a Paul McCartney content creator, but just as someone in the fan base. It's so validating that not only is Paul releasing good music, but he is also still able, whether through honest means or through clever, you know, sales loopholes and tactics, able to still put himself out there, you know, be everywhere, be present, be the modern media man that he is, and then still come out on top of the charts as well. It's not all for naught, like a lot of his efforts in the awkward 80s, you know? Paul is back on top. <laughs> Egypt Station went to number one in the US, McCartney 3 went to number 2 in the US and number 1 here in the UK. These are crazy times, folks. You know, this is rather unprecedented. <laughs> Especially for Paul, <laughs> I am sure, you know. He's probably the last one who would expect that McCartney 3 would go to number 1 40 years later. But here we are. As far as I'm concerned, I got the standard black edition and the exclusive HMV blue vinyl also. Sadly, neither of these have unique artwork on the front or inside, so I am still kinda tempted to see if I can pick up the red or violet editions of the album. They both are sold out on the store currently, but, you know, I'm sure in a few decades, the price of McCartney 3 colored vinyl will eventually go down to more reasonable figures, hopefully. Of course, if you haven't already, go back and check out my collaboration with the Holly Hobbs YouTube channel where we did the, the top 10 things you needed to know about McCartney 3. Though, now that album is out, I do feel sorely tempted to have him back on here uh, to talk about it, as well as discuss what future episodes we may collaborate on as well. Speaking of getting in touch with people, get in contact with this show at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always want to hear your McCartney stories, how you how you got into him, any interesting interactions or trivia you may have. Maybe you want to come on, maybe you want to comment on one of my reviews or tell me about an upcoming song in the future, or maybe even you just want to say hi. Either way, the email is paulmccartneypod at gmail.com and we've actually got two emails to read out today for you, everyone. Our first email is one of my favourite categories, actually, which is the kind of email that is sent solely to boost my ego and inflate my self-worth. Trust me, I need them. But yeah, this was sent by an anonymous emailer whose identity I will withhold because at first they didn't want me to read out this email at all, but I've redacted it and I'm going to simply refer to them as AS. They are a lovely person. They know who they are, but I'm just going to read out a brief portion of their email. It says, Dear Mr. Wiles, very good start. My name is A.S. I'm a 21-year-old graduate student of UC San Diego, born and raised in California. I studied political science, and I hope to go off to law school next fall. I am a massive Beatles, Solo McCartney and Wings fan, and I've been rapidly consuming any and every podcast I can find about any of the aforementioned entities. And, I must say, of all of those I've listened to, yours is particularly enjoyable. I can tell from the way that you speak that you are very intelligent, which makes for rather interesting listening when it comes to your opinions and explanations of songs slash albums. You really have a wonderful way with words. 
with other certain podcasts. I feel quite frustrated with the host's pacing or inarticulate discussion. So, first of all, thank you for your wonderful podcast episodes. I enjoy them so much that I feel like I'm indulging in the guiltiest of pleasures when I listen, especially since I'm in the middle of applying to law schools. In particular, I really enjoyed your shows on Ram, McCartney One and Venus and Mars, my favourite albums. I love re-listening to these albums, but once you hit the umpteenth listen, it gets a little boring, which is exactly when these episodes feel like a godsend. They allow me to enjoy these albums through new eyes, as if I'm conversing with a friend, which I always crave since I'm fairly musically isolated in my own social circles. I was really excited when you expressed your love for Ooh You on the McCartney episode. It was my top song on Spotify this year. Something about that song makes me want to let my hair down and never stop dancing, but I think it's so underappreciated. Currently, I'm unemployed and out of college. Money spent, see no future, pay no rent. But as soon as I find employment, I'm looking forward to becoming a patron of your cool show. Thank you, and sorry for this obnoxiously long email in advance. Ah, yes. First of all, thank you so much for that email there. Aside from, of course, all the wonderfully complimentary things you said about me and the show... I am just touched whenever I read an email that has clearly had so much care and thought put into it. And to think that it's directed at me is pretty crazy to say the least, but we're going to roll with it. I totally get what you uh, mean about being musically isolated. And I think that that happens a lot, especially for younger McCartney fans, since he isn't so relevant in the pop scene anymore. Like with a lot of the legacy fans, shall we say, of past generations, they've got friends in their own circles that like Paul. Whereas me, it's either people my age from all over the world or it's people I know who are much older. I don't have many friends my age that really respect the wider oeuvre of Paul's work. So that's what this podcast is for, you know. So I'm I'm so glad you're able to vent that feeling because I totally get that. And on top of that, ever since day one with this pod, I've been looking forward to discussing Paul with, you know, newer and fresher fans. A huge part of this podcast was finding out where the Paul McCartney fan base is and where my generation is with him and where future generations are going. But knowing that Ram is already in your favourite albums, I definitely know that the next-gen generation, everyone, is going in the right path. Also, speaking of McCartney slash McCartney 1, I'm not going to lie, I did appreciate that you were so kind about those episodes, as I have previously mentioned before, I'm a little self-conscious about the early episodes of this show, and I can see myself putting them behind a paywall or on Patreon or something. But if those episodes aren't the huge turn-off that I think they are for you, that's great. Again, AS... I hope you can forgive me for reading a truncated version of your email out here, but even just one paragraph of what you just sent in would have sufficiently rubbed my ego and gotten on the podcast. Absolute best of luck with law school and finding employment. I mean, fuck, this podcaster has seen two stints of going on the dole on benefits, you know, receiving governmental handouts, you know, that's happened to me twice now since I've started this podcast. So in regards to that, you have my utter sympathy there you know best of luck with that and thank you so much for for the email again our next one is the other kind of email i love on this podcast and that's the one that is all criticism and witticism of course folks mccartney 3 is still new i want to hear all of your thoughts i want to hear what you think about mccartney 3 literally 
email in, hit me up on the Twitter, send me a, a letter in the post or a pigeon, smoke signals, whatever it is. You know, you might not think I want to hear your thoughts right now. Maybe you're a little self-conscious about how you might write or present it. I don't care. Send in your thoughts, just like this email here. This is from Justin Helbig, and let him inspire you to write in. Justin says, Hello from British Columbia, Western Canada. I only began listening to the podcast about two weeks ago. I believe after John Heaton mentioned he would be on it. Hopefully that's coming up. And here I am, listening to a two-hour review. Well, I might as well share my current opinion on the album. I hadn't given it nearly as many listens as you have, a dozen or so, which I had at the time and now it's growing. So, I'm now listening to it, loud of course, whilst writing this email. I don't have nearly as many strong opinions as you from the outset, but that's perfectly normal for me. I guess I'll try a track-by-track review then. Long-tailed winter bird? I like it. Not too much to say about it, really. I don't think it's too long at all. A minus. Find my way. I, unlike you, have nothing against Paul's poppy side. Yes, it is somewhat standard. Yes, it is a very Egypt station. Though I don't think that's a bad thing. I really like the album. But I don't understand how you don't just want to sing along and tap your foot when it's played loud and you're standing up. It's a fun track and most certainly has its place on the album. I hope your view on it improves smiley face a plus pretty boys i like it not too much to say here not as catchy as the previous song some mildly interesting lyrics here a nice tune b plus women and wives i think it'll take a bit more time for me to really get this track and pretty boys for that matter i'll give women and wives a b for now and hope that changes though Lavatory Lil. I see this track as the real come on to me of this album, although significantly less poppy. I wasn't paying attention to the promotion of Egypt Station when it was going on, though I do remember people talking about it on the radio, and I only got the CD sometime later. So, as a result, I formed most of my opinions myself about the album, without any influence of lead singles, reviews or whatnot. I think Come On To Me is a good song, not his best or anything, but good, a nice rocker. Lavatory Lil, on the other hand, comes from an album I most certainly have been paying attention to the release of. It was so fun, catchy, but it'll have to grow on me for a bit. B plus. Deep, deep feeling. I think we agree on this one. It's got one hell of a groove. C-Link much? A plus. Sliding? Oh yeah, love it. The ends certainly justified the means of having other people perform on this track. A+. The Kiss of Venus. I mean, who can hate this? It's just beautiful, and will only become more so as this album ages. If Paul died three weeks after this album came out, please don't Paul, I think it would have relatively the same emotional value as John's Beautiful Boy. Even if Paul gets, say, three more albums out, I think this will remain a highlight of his post-2015 career. Bonus points for having a song about planets come out just before the near alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. You can't planet A+. Seize the day. This one's good too. I think I'd tie it with track two for the upbeat pop number of the album, as they both play to different strengths. This one's more how 
the lyrics are themselves an instrument, whilst Find My Way is more about the music itself and not the lyrics, if you get what I'm writing. The latter would just be awesome as a backing track without the vocals, which I think I said in my in my uh, review as well, whilst I don't think the same can be said for Seize the Day. In other news, Eskimo is a bit of a derogatory word. They don't like it to be used. Here's a quote from NPR. People in many parts of the Arctic consider Eskimo a derogatory term because it was widely used by racist, non-native colonizers. Many people also thought it meant eater of raw meat, which connoted barbarism and violence. Although the word's exact etymology is unclear, mid-century anthropologists suggested that the word came from the Latin word excommunication, meaning excommunicated ones, because the native people of the Canadian Arctic were not Christian. But now there's a new theory. According to the Alaska Native Language Centre at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, linguists believe the word Eskimo actually came from the French word Eskimo, meaning one who nets snowshoes. Netting snowshoes is the highly precise way that Arctic peoples built winter footwear by tightly weaving or netting sinew from caribou or other animals across a wooden frame. So yeah, bit iffy on that one. Whatever though. A plus. Deep down. This could have been on Egypt Station, I think. It's pretty good. B plus. Winter bird when winter comes. Well, the track that started it all. It's not my favourite song on the album, though admittedly I don't know what is. I still like it a lot though. I think that the acre plot bits bring it down just a little. I would say it's second to the Kiss of Venus in the cute acoustic area, but it will without question grow on me. Still an A plus though. There you go. It seems I have more opinions than I thought I did. I haven't bought it yet, as I'm sure some bonus CD will be more worth my money if I don't buy an extra album with it first. Until then, shalom. Merry Christmas. War isn't over. And a happy new year. Christmas time is indeed here again. Justin Helbig. Wow. Justin, again, again, thank you so much for that incredible email. This is exactly, you know, the other kind of correspondence I always enjoy reading because at the end of the day, folks, what are these silly opinions on music that we have if not to needlessly compare them with people we meet online? That's why I made this show. And I'm so happy that I received this. Of course, I love how in-depth and thorough the, re the review was. And i got to say, it was a lot more cohesive and structured and put together than a large amount of the so-called real magazines and publications and newspapers we've read out on this podcast. But, but regardless of that, I just enjoyed it because I love reading other people's opinions, you know? That's why I check out other people's podcasts. It's not to learn stuff, it's just to hear their thoughts on the music. Which is probably why I should, you know, get to the episode a lot quicker than I do. I'm committing my own sins, but hey, this is a very indulgent podcast. Um, specifically though, Justin, with, with your email, I'm very pleased with your overall grading, because if anything, you were far kinder. I was on, on my on my previous episodes, you know. A lot of the uh, writing you gave was quite mediocre, but then, you know, you'd you'd give it an A or a B plus, so that's that's very kind of you. To use your scoring system, as far as I'm concerned, though, Pretty Boys is lightly still a C. 
and Women and Wives is getting a solid D, maybe even a D minus. But we can't always agree on everything, can we? I love that bit about Eskimos, though. I remember when Paul mentioned that line in, it, it might have been the uncut review. Most of my thoughts with this album always end up going back to that uncut article. And being, you know, as many of us are these days, rather hyper aware of political correctness and offending people, I was a bit, oh no, Paul, you, you probably shouldn't say Eskimo. You should probably use the more correct term of Inuit. Does First Nations people apply apply to Inuits as well? It might do, I'm not sure, but I know the term Eskimo is not enjoyed by that community at all. And so to have all of that confirmed by that statement from NPR was, was very interesting indeed. I hope Paul hasn't put his foot in his mouth with this one. Though, again, it's like the Get Back Pakistanis version than the uh, No Pakistanis version. I mentioned this on another podcast I'm, I'm, I'm doing as well. It's just Paul and his affinity for the aural quality of words. Yankee Toes and Eskimos just happened to rhyme together and fit the structure he was using. Could he have just thought himself out of that hole and written something else? Probably. Did he? No. And that's why he's Paul McCartney, you know, back to the dustbin lid line. But anyway, I am I am digressing that the, the most important thing there is thank you, Justin, for that fantastic email there. And folks, please be like Justin. I would love to read similar similar emails like that, whether your thoughts are congruent with Justin's there or maybe you have completely different ones to mine and his. Please drop us an email at paulmcconeypod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter for daily updates at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog, our sister blog, for bonus articles and Paul or Nothing content on paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Uh, is slowly but surely catching up with the podcast feed and everything you are listening to right now will eventually be on the YouTube, hopefully sooner rather than later. If you're enjoying the show, if you want to help out the show right now, if you want to do it in a way that takes minimal effort and less than 30 seconds, please consider leaving a five-star review on whatever platform you are using, however you are watching the show. Maybe give us a thumbs up or the equivalent thing, yada, yada, yada. You know the drill by now, folks. It always helps us out in the algorithms and gives us that exposure. You know, we get recommended that kind of thing. If you're feeling really generous, maybe you'll write a little review as well just to say how much you're enjoying the show. And last but certainly not least, if you want to support the show more directly, if you want to help support the show, see us grow, help keep the lights running, help pay for new equipment and opportunities for me on this podcast, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon is a way that you can support independent content creators such as myself by throwing a few dollars a month down the internet at my face. Of course, the show is free. It's ad-free. I do it whilst working at a full-time job. I'm currently on furlough at the moment. But if you enjoy the show, if you've been enjoying the hundreds of hours of content I've put out there, you know, we are over, we are well over 100 episodes now. If you'd like to give back, you know, maybe buy me a drink or a cup of coffee or something like that, please consider joining our Patreon page down below. The Patreon page 
Coming up with some new Patreon rewards and bonuses is definitely something I want to have done by the end of 2021. That's one of my new promises to you and myself. Definitely going to be working on that. But in the meantime, of course, I have to give shout-outs to my Patreon family. Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Louis DeLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S., Sam Hode, Anastasia P., Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, my man Matt Phillips, and a fucking huge special shout out to one Tony Vosol. You would have heard his name on this podcast many a time, folks. But Tony actually sent in some fan mail the other day. Uh, well, actually, it, it arrived here in the UK about two weeks ago, and it's just got through customs, and you know, I've paid all the duty and stuff like that. And I opened this box that Tony had sent me, not expecting much at all. I open it, and you're going to have to go on the social media, you know, the Instagram and the Twitter to see this, but Tony sent me a lot of fucking stuff, folks. I, I told him this when I received it. I really was lost for words, which is very rare for me. Let's just say, at least a single manly tear rolled down my cheek at that moment. Uh, Tony sent me some vinyl. He, he sent some McCartney merch. Some of it I did have before, but crucially, they were American pressings, you know, Columbia, that kind of thing. That I didn't have, so I was very excited to have that kind of stuff. But also, he sent stuff I didn't own previously, like the entire live vinyl set of Tripping the Live Fantastic, the McCartney interview from 1980, the McGear album, uh, Holly Days, which I'd never heard before, a couple of 12-inch singles, and... Most shockingly of all, a club sandwich, hot hits and cold cuts, bootleg vinyl. Like, folks, I'd never even seen one of these in the wild, and now I own one. That's totally unprecedented. That's, that's almost as good as McCartney 3 coming out this year in terms of my fandom and this podcast. It's fucking crazy. Thank you so much, Tony V. You know, you are one of the OGs, you know that. And I really am indebted. Uh, you know, I really am. It's really touched me. Uh, we've been doing this pod nearly five years now, and this is the first bit of a official fan mail I've had. Yeah, thank you so much, dude. Anyway, we are well over half an hour for this episode, folks, so far, and we haven't even nearly begun. So, yeah, let's crack on with some of the context. So, yeah, just a little bit of background information before my chat with Mr. Doug Dale. Don't worry, this isn't going to be all that long, as we've taken long enough. Of course, the Cavern Club is the underground venue where the Beatles made a name for themselves in Liverpool after graduating venues like the Jacaranda and the Cash Bar Club. The Beatles played nearly 300 times at the original Cavern Club location, aka 10 Matthew Street, before it was closed in 1973. It was then reopened at 7 Matthew Street across the road shortly afterwards, but that's not the real Cavern Club, something that still likely burns Macca and many fans to this day. On the 25th of July 2018, whilst promoting Egypt Station, McCartney announced that he would be performing a secret show during a Facebook Live Q&A at Lippa, aka the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, where he took part in an onstage interview slash conversation with former pulp frontman Jarvis Cocker. Paul said... We're playing at the Echo Arena in December, but we also have one tomorrow. We have a little secret gig somewhere in Liverpool. I'm not kidding you, Jarvis. At 9am on the 26th of January 19, 2018, 
Paul announced on his Twitter that the tickets would be sold at the Echo Arena box office at 10am for a one-off show at the Cavern, leading to an army of Scousers and personal assistants to the upper classes swarming the Echo Arena. Only 250-ish tickets would be available, and since it was Liverpool, I can only assume hundreds, if not thousands, of fistfights broke out as a result. Only joking, only joking. Of course, folks, this wasn't the first gig since Paul's infamous cavern days as a Beatle, and he'd actually done two shows before. The first, an official show that was recorded uh, as a concert film on the 14th of December 1999, which I'll actually be bringing up in my review later on. Uh, And then, once again, at the end of a tour, just as a little fun party trick, party piece, I guess, as it were, on the 30th of May 2003. Anyway, back to around 1pm on the 26th of Jan 2018, and people start gathering outside the club itself, as did the media, who began interviewing all of the lucky ticket holders, and later they all went inside, and by all accounts, they had a bloody old good time of it. They filed out, assumingly in an organised manner, and then... Well, that's exactly it. Not a lot happened at all. We did see some snippets of this gig on Paul's YouTube page and in the various news outlets, but that was back in 2018. And it's only now, at the tail end of 2020, that we have this. Was this always the plan? Likely not. I'm assuming there was a gap, you know, to fill in programming, and perhaps Paul wanted to give a gift to another subset of his fans, you know? Maybe... You know, people who might not be necessarily interested in McCartney 3, they now have a nice little gift from Paul at the end of 2020 also. I mean, if you ain't fussed about his new music or coloured vinyl, then this is quite the little bonus, don't you think? Rather oddly, though, we actually heard more about this gig at the time, more through the sensationalist media coverage it received the next day. Like, I know the media will naturally choose a negative story over a positive one, but it's almost like, you know, since McCartney had been given the number one album in the States, and so that means they had to then take him down a peg by printing him as this out-of-touch boomer. If you don't know what I mean, basically the headlines in the news read like this. McCartney scolds audience. McCartney berates audience. McCartney shuts down phone users. McCartney chastises crowd. McCartney tells off fans for phone use. Now, what actually happened was, and I have no problem with this whatsoever, and me and Paul Dugdale do address this later, is that Paul simply got fed up with people sticking their fucking phones in his fucking face in this tight, well-lit environment whilst he's an artist trying to perform. Don't scoff at him being an artist. He is, folks. You've paid to see him perform. You have not paid to have the privilege of, you know, recording this footage. That's what Paul Dugdale and Charlie Lightning are for. Paul told you not to do it, and you still did it anyway. You will bear the consequences. His wrath. But, essentially, it wasn't wrath. Paul just told them not to do it. Is that really headline-worthy? Well, here's what he actually said to the offending parties, and, you know, you tell me what you think. You've all been told not to take photos. You're taking them, and you're taking them. And it's putting me off. So, you know, play by the rules, man. Later, that was followed by the phone thing. I went to a Prince concert and he was really serious about that. He wouldn't start, you know. Put him down, you know what I'm saying? 
And I do know what you're saying, Paul. You know, back in the day, if there was a 100,000 lights in the crowd, it might be some candles or some lighters or something. But now it's just the flashes on people's phones. What are you going to do, eh? The best summary, though, was on the Enemies website when they said, It had the feeling of a parent scolding their children, then instantly feeling guilty. And, for the crowd, it felt like being in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, invited into a wonderland and being too tempted to scoff the lot all at once. Which I do sympathise with, but even at the massive Paul McCartney gig that I went to at the O2 in London, never once did I want to take out my phone and break my immersion in the moment. Why would you want to do that? For the Instagram likes? Go fuck yourself, you know? But anyway... Enough of all this chit-chat. We're fast approaching an hour, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, you will A, know enough about this gig, and B, just want me to cut to the live feed. So I'll just do that. One, two, three. Take it away, me. And now, folks, it's time for me to bring on my guest. We all know McCartney works with the best in the biz, no matter the collaboration, and never has that been more apparent with the man I'm speaking with today. He's a multi-Grammy-nominated director and documentarian and has worked with the likes of The Rolling Stones, Taylor Swift, Muse, The Gorillas, ELO, Adele, Ariana Grande, and even some guy named Paul McCartney. For some reason, he's kindly decided to donate a few minutes of his morning to discuss, amongst other things, his upcoming live concert special, Paul McCartney Live at, ellipses, The Cavern Club. Everyone, please welcome Paul Dugdale to the show. How's it going, dude? Oh, good, Sam. That's the most showbiz and uh, glamorous uh, opening introduction I've I've ever had. So I feel very special. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to speak to you. I'm not going to lie; I get that quite a lot, actually. So thank you for saying that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I I always like to start these interviews with the most British question ever. So, where are you calling from, and what's the weather like? <laughs> I'm calling from uh, the Kent coast. I'm down in a little village quite near Folkestone um, in Kent, which is where my family live. And I, I am just before this tier four introduction, I, I was down here visiting my mother and my sister. And I've stayed on for a couple of days because I know that I'm not going to be able to spend Christmas with them. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm just kind of marooned here for a couple of days before going back to London. No, we were just speaking off air that it's been a pretty mad year for all industries, but especially the uh, live music circuit as well. I mean, I couldn't imagine a single art form that more uh, requires packed audiences to uh, achieve the, uh, the right effect. Have there been any socially distanced concert films yet? <laughs> well, it, it, what's been interesting this year is that it's kind of spawned this new... Uh, genre, if you like, of um, recording music recordings and, and live recordings of these kind of global live streams, which I've been lucky enough to partake in. I've, I've done one for um, this year for James Bay, for Sam Smith, for Niall Horan. So that's I've been really lucky that I've been able to do those. And obviously, the crews involved in those uh, in those shows, I've all equally, I think, were kind of thrilled to be back out on the road, just even for a short time. It's really terrible. I, I was saying to someone the other day, I. A really good friend of mine who I used to um, tour with, I, I used to work for the band The Prodigy, you know, not entirely uh, related to Mr. McCartney, but, um, and, he, and, a, and a guy that was on their crew and who also worked for Adele was, was chatting to me and I was saying, well, you know, how bad has it been? And, you know, he, he was 
talking about truly retraining and getting a new job. And he's like the best in the business and, and had been working on, you know, on a touring crew for, for 25 years. It's just insane. Like I, I feel so bad for, for those guys. And um, yeah, all those teams of people behind the artists are just really struggling. It's, it's a, been a terrible year for, for, for that, you know. Yeah, they could they could all be retail salesmen, but they just don't know it yet, according to the poster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, not that we Thanks. get political on a on a on a, on a yeah. <laughs> podcast. However, Paul, <laughs> you are wrong that I don't want to talk about the prodigy because something I like to do whenever I get a filmmaker on a podcast is to go through the very depths of their IMDb page. And okay, cool. You know, I mean. I'm sure you will be known for many things to, to, to many people, including the three huge concert film slash docs that I watched on Netflix last night. But perhaps until I watch Paul McCartney live at the Cabin Club, you will be the chap who directed the Omen music video for The Prodigy, which... Yeah, man. That was seminal for me grow, growing up, man. That was fucking crazy. When really? I went, yeah. Oh, they, cool. oh no. Jamie, that, that creepy little girl with the xylophone. Love it. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Amazing, amazing. Yeah, man. Yeah, they they were really. Um, I worked in without giving you major history, but I, I I was I worked in TV for a while, and and I was lucky enough to kind of have an opportunity to tour with them, and so I toured with them for about four or five years, and um, you know, pretty much nonstop. I mean, I wasn't on every show, but virtually every every weekend or at least a couple of days a week, I was I was off with them and touring the world, and I, I made a lot of stuff with them. And it was just an incredible education, not only for filmmaking, obviously, because you're someone's paying you to make stuff all the time. So, you know, you kind of uh, learn your craft. But just being on the tour with on a tour with a, mm. with a band like that is just, you know, pretty mind blowing. And I was a huge fan when I was a kid. So, yeah, it was a kind of a dream come true scenario, you know. Of course, rest in peace, Keith, as well there. Absolutely. Something I noticed in that video, just going back to it as soon as I knew that this uh, conversation was going to happen. Everything in your filmography seemingly has live music incorporated in some way, even, you know, the music video format. So what is it that first drew you to it? What is so irresistibly compelling about putting that experience onto film for you? Mm, yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess um, there's a couple of things. One was I, I love music. I just absolutely love music and I love gigs. And I, I was in a band. I mean, in a way, I suppose we never broke up. We were in a band. I was in a band called The Chinapples and we toured. Uh, we didn't tour. We we played around London in that kind of early libertine mm. uh, kind of uh, scuzzy Brit rock indie vibe around kind of mid two thousands and played some decent gigs. Played some fun shows and and um, you know we I think we went for the Arctic Monkeys the first time they played London and stuff like that. You know like oh, wow. played with the Cribs and anyway other other really amazing artists around that time um, and so. I just love live music. And then partnered with that, I used to work as a, my sort of introduction into, into film was working as a camera assistant in TV. And we just used to do quite a lot of music. I think that the people that I was working with, the, the directors and the cameramen were in this kind of pool of people that were making concerts and they were filming Top of the Pops and CD UK and all these other, a lot of music DVDs. And so we would tour uh, the world or Europe at least doing you know any artist that would make a big DVD at that time I was lucky enough to kind of go as a as a as a young man and uh, and kind of have a taste of what that's like and it was just amazing you know the scale of it mm. being it kind of also I was thinking about it the other day because I don't really get to do it anymore but when I was doing that when I was a cameraman or a camera assistant you get to be on stage with these artists you know and you <laughs> see what it was like 
to be stood in front of a hundred thousand people at Glastonbury or however many it is, and uh, or Wembley Stadium, it's just an incredible experience. And and I think back to it so fondly now. Occasionally, I come out of retirement and I have a camera back in my hands, and I get to do that again. And it never ends. You know, it never doesn't give you a huge buzz. But so those two kind of combined things. I, I really kind of cut my teeth in that concert world. And so I really knew, I, you know, working with all those other um, directors and artists, I really just learned my craft. And so it was a kind of a natural progression to continue to do that as a director. Um, and, uh, and like I said, yeah, the prodigy was kind of a really incredible entry into that world. And I think once I did that, people would start taking me more, a bit more seriously. And then, um, when, as I said, when I was um, a musician, when I was playing the drums back in the kind of 2005, 2006, around that time, it was kind of Mumford and Sons and Adele and Florence and the Machine. And they were, Japanese and Kid Harpoon, like all these incredible artists were kind of, uh, you know, just crossing paths all the time. And so um, it just kind of set me on this path. I, I, I was, I because I knew them vaguely you know and sort of you know wasn't necessarily friends but but we kind of our paths crossed or I did photo shoots for people or Mm -hmm. you know and the other day I was I found a I'm going really off topic for you Sam sorry but (laughs) I I found um, some some great photos that I've taken of a really really early studio session with Florence and the Machine you know just in in this tiny studio before I guess it was even before the first single was out at that time um and just a load of photos from, you know, just really exciting. So just being around musicians has always given me a huge buzz. So I guess that's, that's sort of why it's ended up being part of my career, I suppose. I totally get that. Even in the dingiest dive bars in Birmingham, you know, there's a certain thrill to like speaking to whoever's just been on, been on stage when they're at the bar, you know, oh, you were really yeah, good, exactly. you know. Exactly, exactly. It all scales up, it all scales up. Um, speaking of scale though as it turns out you do indeed have four films credited to you on Netflix here in the UK which is I think more than Francis Ford Coppola which is quite uh, <laughs> yeah quite, I mean, quite yeah, a feat I, I that, yeah I'm pretty sure that's how they rate you as a filmmaker 100% yeah. so let's just 100%. let's go with that <laughs> of course one actually premiered yesterday of course being Ariana Grande's Excuse Me I Love You congratulations yeah. on that of course Thanks, well done man. thank you Thank you very much. Yeah, um, obviously you've probably got a lot to say about that to actual members of the press. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, yeah, it's it's a, it's a huge. You know what's amazing about um, having those bits of work on Netflix? Up to this point, a lot of the big sort of films that I've made, you know, films for big artists, I should say, have kind of been DVDs, and then they end up on TV. And so, them being on Netflix is great for a filmmaker because because they're on demand so everyone mm. can reach them so i found like in the in the last few years or you know um since netflix has really been been big and and i've had work on there a lot more people get to see it so that's been really amazing and yeah the the ariana film that dropped yesterday it, like you know there's always a nerve nervy it, it came out at 8 a.m which is midnight <laughs> in in uh, on the west coast of america and so there's this sort of nerve-wracking few hours where I'm just scouring Twitter, seeing how much love or hate I'm going to get from, from Ari's fans. But um, I, it seems to have gone down really well with, with them. So yeah, I was thrilled. And um, yeah, she was lovely to work with. 
yeah, I'm sure if the reviews are half as good as the ones uh, your Taylor Swift one got, then I think you're in pretty good hands. Wow. Something that I've just got to say, as someone who's not a particular Ariana Grande fan, all of your behind-the-scenes stuff did more to humanise and endear her to me as a person than all the assorted media I've seen in the past, like, six years combined. That that bit on the plane where she starts telling the story about the dogs taking a shit on the bed... Yeah, <laughs> that is that is that is peak cinema for me. That was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> or like when, yeah, um, she, yeah. I, she really allowed the the team, like the the, the team that, that did those dot parts. She really allowed them to into be to kind of go into her world, you know. And it's very unfiltered, and um, yeah, it's 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 kind of very honest. Which is, yeah, I agree. It was a surprise to me too how unguarded she was, and. Um, and natural that that footage is. Yeah, it's great. There's also a bit where um, a little girl's comforted because of how high up her seat is at a concert. And that was touching for me because that actually happened to me when I saw Paul McCartney at the O2 a couple of years ago. And a very kind person looked after me and got me better seats as well. So that was ah, a- amazing. Great. Oh, brilliant. Totally. <laughs> I, I did have a real deep dive of your work last night, though. I also watched Rolling Stone's Olay Olay Olay, which... Oh my gosh, that was so enjoyable that I was just glued to the, ah, to, thanks, to, to this car. Oh, no, no, seriously, like there are so many uh, kind of unnecessary docs and another Rolling Stones one could be unnecessary, but there was actually a story to it. And the, and the, and the, and the Cuba thing was a nice little narrative thread to like actually get you invested beyond just this is the Stones doing another, another tour. And there was like that little interlude where, where there's that guitar maker in Cuba, like, oh yeah, that's that's beautiful like that that doesn't need to be there and that and that's why it's better you know yeah it was just such a dream come true to do that you know like touring with with a band yeah tick that's that's super exciting i'd love to do that and then (laughs) going to south america with the rolling stones is just totally insane and i still can't really believe that we did it and um and yes exactly what you said like we we dived into these really incredible little human stories as we as we went around Latin America and um, got to go to these incredible places and meet incredible people and so yeah it was really as a human as a person making the film it was incredibly rich and an amazing time to uh, time for us to to kind of explore an adventure and and try and translate that to screen you know but part of the reason why why a lot of that is like how it is is because we we wanted to make we knew we were obviously we knew we were touring and we knew that hopefully the end goal would be this big show in cuba with the stones but we weren't sure how much how sort of generous with their time the band would be it was my fourth film with them so by mm. that time we we were we were fairly well accustomed and we knew each other pretty well and i think there was a good level of trust. we still weren't sure how much time that they would give us and whether you know how much they would let us into their world so we kind of had to make sure that we could fill a film. <laughs> so in each place we visited, we, we filmed sort of a lot else going on, you know, to, to make sure that we had had stuff. And in the end, the band were really generous with their time too. And I think we, we were a bit able to kind of get some real intimate moments with them as well. So the combination of the two things really gave us a, a you know, kind of brought some magic to that project. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm super proud of it and thrilled that it's on Netflix that, so that people can see it. You've also got a writer's credit on that one. What difference does that have with all of your other work then? Well, the difference with that is, I guess, to a certain extent, Ole 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 is, is, the, is the only real bona fide 
documentary. So it's a, it's like a true documentary in a in a real documentary sense. Mm-hmm. The others, a lot of the others are concert films which have documentary, and and they are. I, I think to a certain extent, all of them are documentaries. Really, like the, mm-hmm. the, in terms of the live music element of it, you're, you're capturing a happening, you're capturing a moment in, in time, and um, and so you could say that they they all all are documentaries, but Aleo Ole Ole was a true kind of, you know, start middle film and, and a, that kind of had a, a real purpose and a agenda to it and jeopardy to it. So the writing credit is kind of comes down to myself and my partner on that, um, Sam Bridger, who, mm-hmm. who, um, who was, at, was the guitarist in the band that I was in and is now a high flying uh, producer of many incredible uh, music documentaries. That was um, collaboration in in, uh, in a work sense together, and um, we sort of the two of us basically just sat down and, and went, okay, well, what what kind of Stones film do we want to make? Like, what what can we do? And mapped it out, kind of sketched it out, and and in a, you know, obviously with a documentary, you never know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. um, but you kind of have to go into it, or at least we did. We wanted to with our, our kind of best plan and knowing the the people that we want to interview so for example the the, the lady that, that repaired and made uh, musical instruments and guitars in cuba just incredible you know making guitars out of guitar um, guitars out of car engine parts and bone and you know right in front of our eyes and um and so all of that stuff you know was part of a really huge pre-planning stage where we mapped it all out really and so you you slightly kind of pivot and move and shift as you're shooting and as you're because we are literally on this adventure with the band and don't really know what's going to happen but to a certain extent what we had on a page in london before we got on a plane to to south america was what the film that we made and and we didn't at that point (laughs) certainly a really huge part of the film is the fact that um when the stones were playing in cuba in havana they had a date for the tour and we were on on the tours and then last minute, um, Barack Obama decided that he was going to visit Cuba at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, for a place called Cuba, place like Cuba, and certainly a place like Havana, which is where he was going, the infrastructure, the amount of hotels needed for journalists, um, just basically everything, the, the, the behemoth of a Stones tour, similar to McCartney tour, I'm sure, is just enormous. And Barack Obama is probably even more huge. So that was genuine jeopardy that we didn't know was going to happen. Of course, when we when we wrote the film and and um, and it was gem- je- obviously with any documentary you want a bit of jeopardy because you know it spices things up. It gives you a reason to watch and it's <laughs> exciting. But we didn't want that much jeopardy. And I remember getting a phone call. We were in a in a restaurant in the, in this amazing square in Mexico City, and and the manager going. I, we're going to have to move the gig. I think we're going to pull the gig in Cuba. And that was like the, obviously the end of our film. And it was hugely nerve wracking and, and being, and, and again, incredibly exciting just as a life experience to be part of that and to be, you know, party to the conversations between the management and Mick and Keith and the band and them trying to keep it on track. Just amazing. And, um, anyway, yeah, it was just a, a, an incredible time. And, um, yeah, really fun to be part of. It makes sense that the film itself would be in jeopardy because it would just be such a downer non-ending, wouldn't it? I know that Charlie Lightning was meant to be doing a Paul McCartney documentary that was going to conclude with his Glastonbury gig this year, but that's just all been scuppered now as well because of COVID, so... Yeah, man, he's, he's incredible, Charlie. Uh, me and him, 
we, it was really funny. We, we have worked sort of uh, Charlie Lightning. I mean, what a name. That's just incredible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, for, he, for many years, he was this kind of mythical man, a renaissance man in many ways in my world. And we'd never met. And then actually, I think at the, the cavern was the first time our paths crossed. And obviously, because we're kind of in the same game, we knew quite a bit about each other and had, but had never met. And it was so lovely to meet him there. And we had an amazing conversation in the, in, sort of in the, in the bowels of the cavern. And he, at that time, he was telling me all about his Liam. He's a lovely man. And um, yeah, have you, ever, have you spoken to him before? Has he been on your show? <clears throat> I, might, I might ask you for his details after, after this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's such a nice guy. And then subsequently, it's really helped me. So we've been sort of speaking about various projects. He, he's been giving me some great advice. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. You should get him for sure. 100%. But um, you also mentioned that that Paul McCartney gig that I was supposed to be talking about. Um, I, I mean, I could I could feel myself <laughs> going off onto a tangent where I was like, "Oh, I love that Ronnie Wood painting bit," but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna resist. I'm gonna resist. Um, though I will relate it back. So I'm watching Reputation Taylor Swift, right? And I'm seeing all these grand yeah. swooping camera movements and more coverage than a Michael Bay production, and I'm thinking. How is this guy going to contain his vision to the dark confines of the Cavern Club? Were there any difficulties in scaling down, or was it easier to organise? Sam, this show was a nightmare to film. <laughs> and actually, actually, when I say nightmare to film, purely because the room is so challenging, and, and obviously McCartney the Cavern is a hot ticket, so they were ramming, you know, the place was absolutely packed to the rough so normally what happens is for that for the taylor film uh went to this enormous stadium in dallas and before the show starts you're kind of planning out where cameras are going to go and you're kind of reserving space and then they have a load of you know uh, tickets sort of surplus and they can kind of accommodate that space so that we can fit around the tour and around everyone that's going with with the cavern obviously it's a such a different thing because it's such a small club show and um, so the intimacy is ten, well, a thousandfold because you're in this <laughs> tiny club. But um, but yeah, fitting things into that space and and trying to keep it packed because as soon as you start putting cameras in, one camera can kind of become that. Once the camera's there and a tripod's there, man's there, and a and a little mojo barrier is around it, it's kind of like you know, fifteen, twenty people. In, it's in some cases. So mm. it, we we wanted to reserve sort of preserve the preserving the integrity of a show is really important especially in a size like that because that's where the magic happens really that the 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 relationship between artists and the crowd is is something that is that is live music you know and and so we wanted to keep as many people in there as possible um i think there was a decision maybe maybe by paul or the or his people to not have a barrier at the front. There was no mojo, I don't think. Mm. Um, so, you know, people right up to the stage. So all of that stuff is fantastic. But from a filming perspective, from what you said, it's kind of a nightmare because, you know, normally you'd have, oh, here we go, we'll have a camera in, right in front of Paul or maybe it'll <laughs> be on a track. You know, all of that kind of stuff. All those luxuries were out the window. And so what was kind of fun for me is trying to find solutions to you know how do you film a show like this when 
really a really huge part of it is the, the audience being there and what the relationship is and how amazing it is to be only a few meters from Paul McCartney singing all those songs. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was in that respect, it was challenging. Well, it wasn't like a, a not in a bad way because it's part of the job and it's kind of fun to find the mm-hmm. solutions for those things. But um, certainly totally different from the Taylor Swift show. And um, yeah, and, and I guess in, in terms of it, how it feels, obviously it's completely different anyway. And yeah, it was um, interesting when we first walked into the room and we're kind of working out, you know, capacity and, and, and the amount of people we have to fit in. It was an interesting few hours trying to work out what to do, you know. Yeah, I'm sure the, uh, the uh, ticket sellers were like, yeah, you don't need three cameras. Yeah, you don't need that. Well, well, exactly. Well, you know, like in 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 the you know in the in the stadium. So the stadium where we did Taylor was like where where Dallas Cowboys play, and I I don't know how I, I think it was like eighty thousand or something. So if you're taking up two hundred people with your cameras or, or maybe more, then it's kind of all right because you can kind of move people around and and, it, and you get away with it. But with uh, yeah, with this. That, that, I think the capacity was something like 250 or, or maybe less. Or maybe it was like 250, including all the crew and the camera crew and everyone else that needs to be in there, you know, staff-wise. So, yeah, it was tiny, but incredible because of it, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, you shouldn't have insisted on that catwalk for Paul to walk out into the audience, should you, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, one of the things I loved about both Ale 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 and, excuse me, I Love You were those little behind-the-scenes snippets. Can we expect to see any of that with the Cavern Club show, or was at least any of that stuff filmed? Well, Mr. Lightning was there, and actually we pinched some of his footage, but no, uh, essentially this is a concert film, mm-hmm. and when we made it, it, obviously it's been on a shelf for ages, and so... It's been quite a, a strange journey to, for it to come to screen because when we made it, we, we made it fairly straight and we, uh, in the terms of like, you know, we gave it a, a start and an end, but it is a pure concert film. And I think there is, I'm sure that there probably is footage backstage. Well, I, I know that, you know, Char- like I say, Charlie was there and was, you know, filming. So there will be stuff, but um, no, not included in this film. When does this go out, Sam? I, I don't I have no idea whether I'm giving crazy spoilers or and even if I'm meant to be talking about that sort of stuff. I don't know. When, will, will the film have been out by the time this goes out? Well, I want to watch it before I... and I, I want to put a review at the start of this, perhaps, or at the end. Uh, okay, so. cool. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Uh, well, according to the BBC site, I'm going to check it right now. Right now, it says it's going to be broadcast, uh, broadcast Christmas Day, uh, 23.45, so quarter to midnight. Yes. So at the very last point for it to be broadcast on Christmas Day, technically. Uh, why, <laughs> exactly. Why it's not 6 like six p.m. sod it, we don't need the Queen's speech, we need the King's speech. <laughs> you know. Exactly. Well, I was, I was, I was describing it to, uh, to my family the other day as, as uh, that it's going to be on Christmas Day, but it's also on Boxing Day, technically, as well. <laughs> so, you know, it gets, it, <laughs> we're, spanning, we're spanning Christmas. I'm sure it's easier than explaining to the uh, you know to your mom what a podcast is. So you know we, uh, we've all got our uh, rocks to bear. Uh, something I noticed a lot in your um, Netflix filmography as well is your penchant for catching the very best audience reactions. Uh, can we expect anyone absolutely losing their shit in the cavern? <laughs> well, they certainly do. Um, in that show, so 
Well, yes, you do. Obviously, you do see audience. I've got to say, with this one, we kind of, we sort of, because it, it was so small, we're kind of bedded in. It's kind of like you, <laughs> quite hard to sort of turn the cameras. Normally, we kind of have the luxury of that kind of, you know, the camera being behind a mojo and, or, or kind of wandering around, mm. uh, you know, a, a venue or a seated stadium or whatever. With this, there was no luxury of that. So, yeah, you see people losing their shit for sure. Like, it was a great crowd and, and you know, uh, people, are, but especially by, you know, by Helter Skelter or whatever, it, it's, it's going off in it quite literally. Um, but, yes, there is audience. But actually, the way that we shot this is more kind of seeing uh, Paul and, and the band uh, on stage, but seeing it through through the audience so we're kind of shooting quite for sort of first person perspective quite often mm. it's as if you're, you're as if you're in the crowd which was a big part of it because it was so small and intimate it felt like that was a good way to go so in comparison to a lot of my a lot of my projects um there probably isn't as much audience but but you probably in in general you probably see audience members more often but i guess more often the back of their heads or, or arms in the air you know um, rather than uh, mm-hmm. rather than faces, I like that though. I like the idea of coming up with an, an artistic way of expressing your own limitations, rather than going right. We're still going to try and shoot this like the Ariana Grande one at the Forum or something, you know, because that just wouldn't have worked. So I'm I'm so glad you were yeah. able, you were able to work around that. Oh yeah, exactly. And also, it can be a strength because because you know if you're in a little if you are in a in a, a in a little club. You don't really want the footage to feel like it's top of the pops or something. You know, you, I, I was really, I'm, you know, I, I'm really conscious for, for, for that. I, I was really conscious for that project. And similarly for the Stones, where you realize the importance of these artists and their, and their, their, and their legacy. And you realize that what you're doing is truly documenting these kind of just masters of music. And so actually there's a, a real desire to to just capture it you know and and in the truest sense you know like i was saying earlier on about about a lot of these concert films are essentially documentaries they just happen to be capturing a live performance and that's the only difference and um with with taylor and um and ari there's an enormous enormous amount of um you know of theatrical input and the shows are huge and there's choreography and all of that stuff Whereas this is kind of just, it, it is what it is. And, uh, and it's incredible because of it. You know, you're just seeing it pure and, um, and, and uh, uninterrupted. And, it's, and so, the, so the desire for me was like, what's it like to be at this show? You know, there's only 200 fans pretty much in the room. So I just want to show what it's like to be there. Of course, one part of this gig was actually uh, re- reported on in the media before we even knew that it was even going to be a- a released. Supposedly, according to BBC News, this is the gig where Paul berates the crowd for filming on their iPhones. Can, mm. you, can you tell me about about that at all? And did yeah, that, yeah, did it make the cut as well? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's really funny. I um, what was I doing? I think I knowing that it was going to come out. I think I went sort of back and sort of did my own research on my own project because it was so long ago and going, oh, yeah, what happened? And then and I came across that and I was like, oh, yeah, that was the sort of headline, which was sort of really unnecessary. But I think at the time, 
it was like, look, it's a small club. If you have phones in this club, it's going to ruin it for everyone. I mean, phones are just the scourge of modern music, you know, live music anyway. It's just ridiculous. And I think it's funny. I went to see, uh, who was it? I think I was doing, in fact, I was filming a thing for Coldplay, but um, they had the band Ash supporting them. And I used to love Ash when I was a teenager and, you know, still do. And they're an incredible band. And I found myself getting my phone out and filming a bit of it. And I just suddenly <laughs> thought, I'm one of those people. But the difference was I filmed it a really short bit. And I just and I just wanted to, I think it was just to sort of send to my friends, you know, my, my childhood school friends to go, look, I'm fucking seeing Ash. How amazing is this? So I do get it. I totally get why people do it. And they want to savor that moment. But holding your phone up for you know, 90 minutes, two hours is just kind of ridiculous, especially when it's being filmed. So I understand why they didn't want people to have their phones in there. And also it kind of makes the, this, um, to a certain extent, this film more, more um, special because it really is amazing to not see people constantly filming on their phones. So it wasn't a huge deal at all. And I think, to be honest, no one was really doing it. I think one person just didn't, you know, didn't want to join in with everyone else and, and did it. Um, and he he said, oh, can you not film? But he was really polite about it. I, I think it was kind of blown out of proportion. And it was just a headline to grab onto. But um, I was right behind Paul, you know. I, I, I think live, it's nowadays, and especially it makes you, you know, this year has really made me notice this more than ever, is that, if you get to to be part of an uh, an experience where your your sort of a mutually shared live experience is just incredible, it's magical. It's what human life is kind of all about, you know. And um, being in the moment with everyone in unity and celebrating through music and celebrating an artist uh, is is really truly special. And so, if you remove yourself from that by <laughs> doing your own thing and trying to film your own like be you know it's very sort of insular and strange and you know your arms in the way of the person behind you it's kind of annoying so no I'm I was right behind him but it wasn't too much of a big deal really not that I'm trying to impress you with brownie points or anything but when I saw Paul in 2018 I didn't have a single fucking photo from the entire day I've I, yeah great it's, it's really bad as someone who's to, who's trying to run their social media account and you know get get the old retweets and that but uh not a single memory. <laughs> yeah, when I think when I think of like being when you know when I was I don't know seventeen eighteen and and we were at Reading Festival and you're just in a pit. If you had a phone out, that phone is not coming home in your pocket. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's gone, and you because you're having the best time. And I think, I mean, I guess it's a wider. It's definitely a, a kind of a much wider conversation about you know the the, the screen and and its presence like in people's lives you know the screen time and mm -hmm. how much people are not living in the moment is just a, such a huge thing but yeah certainly in a gig like come on let's just you've got to just let loose and and um you know have a couple of drinks and just enjoy it and take those memories you know oh there was nothing better than when i discovered at the o2 that they serve double pints paul oh my <laughs> gosh <laughs> exactly and then they I'm give you a it. tray like like a milk tray to carry up to 12 <laughs> each so you see so like just 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 the literage i'm carrying here is impressive alone um exactly all right let's just go back to the start of the project for a moment when did you first get the call about it how did you first hear about this how did you react i 
it's funny. I wondered whether you'd ask me something like that. And I was in, I've done just re- some really incredible jobs, but this one is the only one where I can literally remember getting the phone call. It's really strange. And I, I and I was thinking even, even like the first stones that I did, the Coldplay, <laughs> to a hugely important, amazing moments. And obviously, you know, I have cherished memories, but I don't remember that initial phone call. But with Paul McCartney, I was, uh, I'd taken my son, I have a five-year-old son, he was uh, three at the time, and we were just down in Brighton. And we were about to go on Brighton Pier, and, um, and I got a call from... Um, a guy called Simon Paisy, who's the exec producer, who I, who again I worked with for years, and even when I was a, a, a kid as a camera assistant, I used to work for his company, Done and Dusted, who were the production company on this project. And he phoned and said, uh, "How do you like Paul McCartney? <laughs> uh, Paul McCartney's <laughs> doing a show, and it's at the Cavern." And uh, and my jaw dropped, and yeah, it was really exciting. And I just, it, I think it was just like, you're kidding me, like I, you know, it's a. I, I've been lucky enough to have so many incredible opportunities to be around heroes and, and just, you know, all, all these musicians and incredible artists. And so, you know, it, it was just mind blowing really to get that phone call. So yeah, I remember it well. And, um, and it was kind of like, yes, Kelvin, of course, when do we start? And mm. and it was quite a, as I I remember rightly, it was pretty last minute. It was like a really fast turnaround. We, I think we only got a call about it, you know, a couple of weeks before, which is really unusual. Normally, it might be, you know, four months out and, and we start planning and, you know, doing um, recce's and, and um, scoping it out and planning. But um, this was pretty seat of your pants stuff. And, and it made it was all the more exciting because of that. That's interesting you should say that, because when I spoke to uh, Brantley Gutierrez, the guy who directed the Who Cares music video, he told me that it was quite spur-of-the-moment kind of thing as well. So maybe, like, with Egypt Station, Paul and Capital weren't initially going to push a lot of media, and then suddenly, two months later, you've got the Grand Central Station gig, you've got James Corden, and, yeah. you know, the YouTube wire yes. thing. There was definitely a switch that flipped somewhere in, like, mid-2018, you know? Mm. Mm. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Did your son ever forgive you for throwing him off Brighton Pier as you rushed back to your to, to, to your car, you know? <laughs> no, you know what was really nice was, it was like the first, it was, we then, I mean, he's only three, but he really loves music. And so it was a nice kind of introduction to a lot of Beatles music for him. And, you know, listening to it, like really, you know, like in it, sometimes you need that impetus to just you know, when you're playing stuff over and over and over, he, that's what he got <laughs> at that time. So yeah, he, it helps him get a bit of a Beatles education at three, which is, uh, which is good. <laughs> yeah. He stayed on dry land. Hmm. Now I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume you, you have, you have no input on what set list is actually played live on the day, but what about in, in the cutting room? Are, um, are, are you able to say, look, I didn't think that that song went particularly well. Let's not include it. Or do you just present the whole thing? It's a good question. So what will happen sometimes is we would, and this goes for all artists. I don't think that I've ever done a show where, have I done a show? I'm just trying to think. Basically, like for whatever reason, sometimes songs get removed and the set list get kind of uh, trimmed, I guess, let's say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes it's to fit a quota of time. Sometimes it's because on screen one song doesn't bounce into the other like it does in the room 
-hmm. sometimes the artist just has an off day and didn't really enjoy that particular song or whatever, what have you. So with this, with this, we filmed and cut everything because we didn't know where this was going to go, you know, right. so, and didn't know where it would end up at that time. And so, yeah, we just, we, we sort of filmed everything and cut everything. So it all exists, but I know that I think to fit time for the BBC, they had to, they had to hit a certain time. And so they have removed very few, but a couple of songs, but not very many. I think maybe it's like three or four and they took the jam out at the start. So it goes, it sort of hits right into, um, right into 20 flight rock. So, and that, and those decisions aren't down to me. Mm -hmm. They're, they're this led. Um, and often, you know, it's a conversation. Sometimes it's a conversation as well, but yeah, it, it's very, you know, it's very, very common to do that. And I, I, it's funny because it's always a weird conversation with artists about it because in theory, the people that are, going to be watching your concert are fans and your fans just want to see everything they don't really you know they, they don't care and they just want they don't want anything to be cut and i understand that whereas to people who aren't super fans there's the desire to keep the show tight and keep it bopping along and you know cut off anything that absolutely isn't essential so it's always a double-edged sword and it's always a conversation and sometimes bands really embrace it uh, like for example like Coldplay are, are like oh no let's definitely trim it down regardless mm. we love all these songs we think they're brilliant but we want the film to be shorter than a gig it's not a gig it's a different thing so let's just make it really punchy and that's great and it works really well um, and also you know it kind of what I quite like about this is that those tracks do exist they're out there and they're, and they're kind of relics to be found in the future and um, you know the never before seen song a version from the cavern will eventually come out you know it will just be kept on a shelf for a few years to come if there is 10 minutes of paul going yeah 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 and then the crowd go yeah 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 and you've cut out confidant you are going to receive a very strong email paul i tell i tell you i tell you that much son i tell you that much <laughs> i'm sure well the thing is it's about telling the story of the of the evening. I, I do you know what I, I'm trying to remember what they, I did get an email telling me what is in and out, and off the top of my head I can't remember. But the but yeah, it, it's funny stuff like that because I, I actually I've been in situations where I pushed I have pushed to remove songs to keep in the yeah 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 yeahs because <laughs> there are there are because but, 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 and and I and I mean this sort of slightly. Uh, uh, what's the word conceptually? Because mm -hmm. it, you know, like eh, that stuff that that you were just saying, like that kind of or any sort of audience interplay that is stuff that isn't the music. Now, obviously, I understand people want to want to hear the songs and hear the music, but there is a certain um, element of character that that sort of stuff brings to the evening. And so, if you start, like you know, like sometimes we've been in situations where you're like, well, we're going to have to lose this song because we we haven't got enough time. And people are like, yeah, but why don't we just trim the, the talking between the songs and then have that song? And I always think, well, actually, I don't always think. It, it's, it, I think it's always dependent on the situation, the artist, what song we're removing. But actually, there's an awful lot of um, character that you get from those moments. And, and it's a, as a way of translating what that evening was like, sometimes it's worth doing that at the, at the expense of a track. But, you know, I'll take... Uh, <laughs> You'll be able to find me on Twitter and Instagram. So anyone that's cross, uh, don't shoot the messenger, but feel 
free to abuse me. Um, you know, I can take it. No, um, the best bit of uh, crowd interplay I've heard from Paul lately was on um, tripping the live fantastic when uh, he's he's Ooh. he's in a he's doing a live gig and he goes. When I was in New Orleans, I met Fats Domino. And then, like, there's just the, the <laughs> crowd give the worst reaction ever. And then he just goes straight, straight into um, uh, <laughs> Ain't That a Shame. And it's, it's, it's so, it's so great. I love, I, I love it when he's definitely in his kind of vaudeville tim, timpani mode. Yeah. You know? uh, in that, in that, that kind of, the, I, that reminds me of the first time that I met him was, um, I again when I was a when I was really young I, I think I must have been about 19 or 20 and I was working as a camera assistant and we were working on this show I think it was like for the national lottery or something in the UK and it was hosted by Lulu I think this is right I might be my stories might be getting completely mixed up but anyway I it think could, it was it with could Lulu, be a fever dream is, you never know yeah which yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but we, I presume which is why Paul McCartney was on the show and myself and my father, who was a, ca- was a cameraman, were walking down a corridor. And who should we see walking down the, other, down the other end of the corridor is Paul McCartney. And at that time, obviously, I'm aware who he is. I know that he's a huge deal. But I was pretty young. And I, and I was kind of like, oh, yeah, Paul McCartney. But my dad, who, you know, was <laughs> certainly of that era and was an enormous fan, he and his brother, um, was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, it's Paul McCartney walking straight towards us, and we're the only people in this corridor. And he was, I think he was alone as well. It was like a really weird chance meeting. And I was like a scruffy teenager, and we're walking along, and without breaking a stride or without any hint of irony, Paul McCartney just looks at me and goes, Get your hair cut. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. And, and like in a friendly way, and we both, uh... cracked, you know, me and my dad just cracked up in that kind of holy shit, he spoke to us type of way. But um, that was really amazing. And then so to, to after all those years of, uh, of, of nature, in some ways, cutting my hair, I was able to uh, come back and actually make something with Paul was a, was a real thrill, uh, knowing that that was our first interaction together. Please, please tell me you relayed that story back to him all those years later. No, no I don't think I did. When we were there, so I, we, we obviously got to got to meet and and, and chat at um, at the cabin, but relatively briefly because he came in pretty last minute and and. And then he was doing a lot that day. I remember like he was doing interviews and stuff in around Liverpool and um, it was a busy schedule and then came in and we, um, we kind of just discussed the, the intention and the vision of how we were going to shoot it, et cetera, et cetera. And what's amazing with people like that, with people like Paul or like the Stones is, you know, that they've filmed a load more than you <laughs> and they are aware of their own image so much because, you know, they have to see it, see, you know, they've just been films and photographs so much so it's kind of quite intimidating speaking to those people and, and trying to you know tell them what you think that they should how it should look and, and how it should feel and whether or not they're going to be receptive to it but he was super lovely and um yeah I couldn't have asked for more and it was lovely to see him but no I didn't really get an opportunity to recount that story I wish I had and when was it finished when did you have the final edit all cut together I've got I, do you know what I can't, the specific answer to that, I can't remember, but I know it was really fast. It was really, really fast. And I think there must have been, at some point, we were working with a commissioner called Paul McKee. It was a lovely, lovely guy who's the sort of the, the person that was instrumental in, in um, you know, in stringing it all together. And I know that when we did ours, it was quite funny because we did ours and we did it really quickly. And then mm. 
then Grand Central Station happened and we and we weren't aware that it was happening and we were kind of like oh no they filmed another show and we were hoping you know to be like the real the one-off but it was but and that show looked amazing but we but also we found out that they were they had so long to edit it we were like what how come they've got so long to edit this <laughs> and that was so fast but it you know because of, because of the scale of it sometimes a project like that as long as you have enough time if it goes on too long, you kind of start, it kind of starts eating itself. If you know what I mean, there's there's something good about making mm-hmm. a film and um, it being really one really fresh in your mind, like the whole experience and trying to capture capture the essence of that night is a really good thing. And you know, you everybody on the project is just gunning for it, and no one has lost their enthusiasm for it. You know, there are some things that go on a really long time like you know a year or more and you can start kind of slowly tiring towards the end and whereas this is just like really knocked out very fast so yeah it was really it was really super quick it was a matter of weeks yeah no wonder peter jackson lost all that weight editing the uh, lord of the rings films you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) so you hinted at this earlier there was no official release plan for this then it was just kind of like you're going to film this you're going to edit it and then question mark I think so. Yeah. What's been, what was useful for me about that was it went on IMDb. Someone put it on IMDb, but then it just had completed, but with no air date. So for the last two or three years, the, the, the thing at the top of my, what, what is basically IMDb, for some of your listeners won't know, is like, is the inter, internet movie database and is essentially my resume, my CV is on there. Like, you know, it's just basically yeah. everything I've worked on. Um, and McCartney just has been perched at the top for like, for, for two years. So I'll be sad that um, he'll now get nudged slowly as, as more work comes in. He'll slowly get nudged down. But yeah, he's been at the, at the top of that list for a long time. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm just trying to remember. I don't think, I think it was just like, we'll capture it. This is happening. We've got to capture it. It's going to happen really soon. And it was like, you know, kick bollocks, scramble to get it all together and um, to get it made. And then, yeah, we just weren't sure what was going to happen to it. But what's interesting with those, that sort of thing is, there's a, especially with doing something for McCartney or doing something for the Stones, is that obviously you want people to see it, but there's something lovely about having something sat on a shelf because you know that eventually it will come out. And I had, this, I had a similar thing for the Stones. We did a a, um, a project that was filmed in um, the Fonda Theatre in Hollywood, which was pretty small, certainly not as small as The Cavern, but it was a small show and they were playing through um, Sticky Fingers. And that didn't come out for quite a long time. And it was quite, an, it's quite nice knowing that you've got a kind of something in a bank vault somewhere, you know, that's finally going to be aired. So yeah, I was so thrilled when, um, when I heard that this was, with this was being played played on um on bbc one and um and yeah a lovely lady there called jan young young husband had um had taken it on and um it was what was weird was um my other half's cousin nick is a mad uh mccartney fan mad stones fan huge (laughs) music head and and so but what was weird was he texted me and said oh my god your mccartney thing's coming out like you must be over the moon. And I didn't know anything about it. And a friend of his who I imagine listens to this podcast, whose name I don't know. So I'm sorry. I don't know your name, but he had told him, he told me. So it, it was so funny. Like I was like, Oh, I can't believe that you know before me, but um, yeah, such is his, uh, his lust for 
you know, put all things McCartney that they 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 knew before I did. So and I was so I was over the moon that to find out and and really thrilled that it just about on Christmas Day. It's it, it's funny even in the times of um, of streaming and uh, and the internet, it's still a real pleasure and a thrill to have something on BBC One on Christmas Day. You know, it's kind of a it's pretty special. So yeah, I'm super proud of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm I'm just shocked that the BBC didn't send a malnourished boy with a piece of parchment to announce the uh, the, uh, the, air of the uh, show for you. Just uh, go, going back to the idea of having stuff sat on the shelves. I mean, like, I think it kind of points to the the mindset of the modern audience and instant access and binge watching. Like, you know, this has been sat on the shelf for two years, and I've been scratching and bouncing off the walls original McCartney fans did not have the Bruce McMouse live concert film from 1972 until last year. So, you know, it's only been two years. It really hasn't been much longer of a wait at all. Yes, I suppose. And you you know what? Having a a McCartney credit as the fifth thing in your IMDb page is still pretty good anyway. (laughs) So, uh, you know. uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. (laughs) Different problems, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, actually, you also answered my last question in that as well. And we're going to bring things to a close there, Paul. You've pretty much covered everything I ever wanted to touch on, even without me asking half of the questions, which <laughs> which always makes me feel like I'm this like Machiavellian puppet master, like yeah, everything's falling into place. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm. Yeah, that's bad though. Maybe I'm. Uh, maybe I talk too much. That's what I'm taking from it. <laughs> but anyway, thanks so much for having me on, Sam. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. And um, yeah, I really, I really hope I did it justice. I hope that um, everyone liked it. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, a huge pleasure and an honour to be part of it. No, thank you so much. I mean, it's always nice to have a different take on the McCartney experience, you know, and that would be very exciting. Well, uh, he'll certainly have a ton more stories than I do, I'm sure. You know, like he, he, you know, I think he's been on the road with him for 10 years or something, hasn't he, or more. Yeah. So, um, yeah. He's he's the main man when it comes to Macca and um, yeah, Michael Lindsay Hogg won't reply to, to uh, the messages I burn in the in the grass on his lawn <laughs> for some for some reason. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know why that that's that's a shame. And uh, Peter Jackson still hasn't replied to my messenger orc either. So <laughs> how good does that stuff look? I, I, oh my I, god, Paul! Oh my god, it looks amazing, it, doesn't it? I thought, you know, when stuff like that comes out, you think, okay, well... How good can it be? How good can it really be? Yeah, how good can it be? But this is, like, amazing. Like, the character that you can see from it is just insane. Yeah, I'm I'm buzzing for that film. Yeah, I mean, incredible. Incredible to unearth that. Yeah, very exciting. I mean, I've said this before, like, it could be a whitewash, but by God, is it going to be the best damn whitewash in town? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, it looks sort of rich in content, doesn't it? So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that one. Oh, just give me more Billy Preston on that on that keyboard. I can't wait for that. <laughs> uh, finally, dude, uh, of course, I'll be posting links down below, but where can people find you? And are you working on anything right now that we can look forward to in two years when that gets released as well? <laughs> yeah, exactly. At the moment, no, I finished for the year. I've got a couple of things bubbling next year, which is exciting, but I don't think anything that I can really tell you about. Um, <laughs> I am, well, you can find me, on Twitter, I think I'm the Paul Dugdale, and uh, Instagram is just Paul Dugdale, and a website which is Dugdale.tv. And yeah, you know, it's just full of stuff that I filmed and um, various bits of work 
over the years. But yeah, and feel free to uh, vent your frustrations at any of your favorite songs that weren't included in, in uh, the cavern. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just holding my hands up and saying that isn't necessarily my fault. But, you know, it's all for the it's all for the great good, I promise. Never say feel free around around me because that'll just set set me <laughs> off on, on, on a path. I thought you, I thought you'd say feel uh, feel free to uh, dictate my uh, projects. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just start this rumor that that you're doing a remake of two thousand and one, a space odyssey or something. You know? And <laughs> yeah, exactly. and and I've cast Zac Efron in the lead. It's like, oh, oh no, oh gosh, no. <laughs> Everyone, I've been Sam Wells, this has been Paul Thing, and I've been talking to Paul Dugdale, apparently. I cannot believe it, but thank you so much for coming on again, dude. Yeah, have a lovely day. Thanks so much, Sam. You too, you too. Have a, have a good one, and yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And there we are, folks. That was my conversation with Paul Dugdale, the director of, amongst many other things, Paul McCartney Live, Ellipses, at the Cavern Club 2018. <laughs> and yeah, I know. I'm still in shock too. What a fucking fantastic conversation that was. I mean, I don't know I don't know about you, but I was on the edge of my seat for the majority of that with my mouth agape drool on the floor. So, now it's time for me to compose myself a little bit and talk about the concert film itself. Now, if you haven't seen this concert film, I did tell you to do so at the start of this episode. So you really have no excuse by this point. You've certainly had the opportunity. If not, see me after class. But what do I think of this concert film, everyone? Well, overall, my reaction was incredibly positive, actually. Yeah, after a little bit of apprehension going in, which at this point is entirely natural, I think, and is present whether the final product is good or not, um... I can confidently say that this is one of my all-time favourite McCartney concerts. Like, just like one of his other concert films, The Rolling Stones' Olay, 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 Paul Dugdale has taken one of, you know, these so-called, quote-unquote, legacy artists and presented them in a way that, A, we really haven't seen before, and B, in a way that makes them look as young, vibrant, exciting and relevant as any artist a quarter of their age. Now, I know what you're thinking, Sam, what do you mean we haven't quite seen anything like this before? We literally have another concert film at the Cavern Club, right? Well, do, do we? The 1999 concert film, also titled Paul McCartney Live at the Cavern Club, in parentheses now 1999, does indeed exist and was recorded mostly to promote the Run Devil Run album, but I'm going to be brutally honest here. Not only is its set list of old rock and roll covers barely able to generate half the excitement of Snova VCCCR, but it's basically shot like something me and my friends could have filmed at university. First of all, the quality is awful even for 1999 cameras, even for 1950s Doctor Who cameras. But there's just nothing in that concert film about the way it's shot or edited or composed or structured that would indicate that it was shot by the same guy who directed the Beatles anthology project and Paul's own In the World Tonight documentary. By contrast, Doug Dale brings a bit of filmmaking flair to this project, 
you know, it do, it has the modern glam, bells and whistles, and he, you know, he actually delivers something that's interesting to watch, that's engaging with the viewer. And yeah, I know I'm not here to review that other Paul McCartney live gig. I'm sure I'll be covering that in a few years when I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel, as it were. But comparisons cannot be helped, especially when Doug Dales is just straight up so much better. Also, in said previous conversation, you'll re remember where Mr. Doug Dale mentions how difficult it was to film in, in such a cramped space. And thankfully, none of that stress and strain comes out in the final film, because to me, it was just as effortless and masterful as any of his other concert films, you know, filmed in, you know, in those huge stadiums or whatever. Mr. Dugdale is a pro, and by Jove, does he ever employ every trick in the book to make this place not just look like what it is, you know, a pre-war cellar in Liverpool. As cliche as it sounds, Mr. Dugdale really does put you in the room at this gig, and so many of the shots made me feel like I was either in the crowd or some lucky roadie just off stage. And this whole thing being as, you know, private as it was at first, this exclusive affair, meant that there was already this level of voyeurism going on. And despite the fact that it's literally being filmed, there was this, this fun special element to me where I felt like I wasn't meant to be watching this. It, it felt kind of fly on the wall. Like, I've been to the Cavern Club myself at least five or six times now, and never since the original Beatle days has it looked half as chic as it does in this concert film. Rather than cramped, it feels intimate. Rather than restricted, it feels focused. And most importantly of all, it's all presented accurately for what it is, in the sense that whilst it's a physically small space... Nothing about the music or the man or the excitement or the crowd or the energy is small. There were also way more camera angles than I was expecting. And because there was so much coverage, the editing is much snappier and the composition is a lot more varied, which again keeps up the interest. In terms of McCartney and the band and their performance, gotta say, incredibly impressed. You know, the reviews and the reaction for this gig was incredibly positive, and I'm all too aware of how people can get caught up in that excitement. But that isn't what happened here. Instead, Paul and the band genuinely give a bloody good show. And frankly, I was just going to be happy to sum this all up and say that I was just happy that this era of Paul was being captured in the first place. But what's so nice here is that this latter-day grand dude Macca performance should be so good on top of that, you know? I really am happy with this one. I'll just quickly detail the set list that Paul did that day and quickly compare that to what was on screen. First of all, Paul started with an instrumental jam, but as Paul Dugdale mentioned, that was cut, just so we go right to the start of the gig, which was 20 Flight Rock, the first time Paul had played it since 2005, and he played it back in 1999 also. I'm really getting into Chobber or Snover at the moment. And uh, yeah, this is just one of my favourite Paul rock and roll tracks ever. Then he went into Magical Mystery Tour, which was much better than the 2012 Olympic performance of the same song. Then we go into Jet. You know, Jet's always in the first five songs and we all know my thoughts on Jet by now, I hope. Into All My Loving. The first real highlight of the show for me 
you know, inarguably, he just nails this one perfectly still. Then we went into Letting Go, which was the first song that was cut, which was a shame, really, because Paul really has been nailing this new addition to his set list. Then we have Come On To Me, which was also cut, but the album version of this song plays us out in the credits, which is a bit of a consolation prize. A few seconds of the footage in the news we have shows him playing this song, which makes sense, as Paul mentioned, you know, the whole thing was shot and edited, but this song uh, was everywhere a few years ago, so I, I understand why, out of all the Egypt Station tracks, this one in particular was cut. Then there's Let Me Roll It, which was, you know, way more fun than it had any right to be, you know, considering how overplayed this one is. Also, again, they did the Jimi Hendrix bit, which was nice to have, you know, on camera. It just was. Then we have I've Got a Feeling, another fantastic vocal in this one, as was Rusty's Lennon vocal bit, which I, I, I did enjoy. Onto My Valentine. I was very pleased with how this one came out and that it was put to film. Done very well, shot very well, great all around. Then we come on to 1985, the only song from Band on the Run that ain't overplayed. Uh, Paul's vocal on on, on on this one again, incredible. Like he, he can't do Maybe I'm Amazed anymore, and yet he can still do 1985. Don't know how that makes sense, but what are you going to do? Then we come on to Lady Madonna, which another song which was a lot sprightlier and energetic than I would have guessed into In Spite of All the Danger. Like my Valentine, I feel very lucky to have this performance captured, you know, 24 frames per second in HD. I'm so glad that I can just go back and revisit it at will in that manner. You know, it is just such an important song like 20 Flight Rock in the Beatles history. And, you know, it was great to see Paul honour it again. Then we come on to Things We Said Today, which was cut, which is surprising as it is a Beatles song. And um, Paul gets the acoustic guitar out for In Spite of All the Danger. And I'm guessing that would have led on to things we said today with him playing it again. And then on to the next track, which is Confidant. That was cut too, which is incredibly annoying as this would have been the only time we could have seen Confidant on film. Not very happy about that at all. Then we come on to Love Me Do, ending the acoustic set. And this is where Paul points out that Giles Martin was out in the crowd. Then we have Who Cares? And again, here, you know, Paul just proves why this is the best song from Egypt Station to do live. You know, it just has such a fun energy to it. It's so goofy. I really enjoyed it. Then we have Birthday, which was way better than the version um, he recorded at Nebworth that I'll be discussing from Tripping the Live Fantastic. Then we have I Want to Be Your Man, which, which was also cut, which makes sense as we didn't get any John or George either. Then we have Fur You. That was the bonus track from the expanded edition of Egypt Station. Then we have Get Back. I was glad he nailed that one as, you know, it was the low point of when I saw him in 2018. He does Da, where he explains that the lyrics are Life Goes On Bra, not Ra or La which was a cute little highlight for me. Then there's Band on the Run with some particularly strong vocals and a very synthy segue into the third segment of the song that I thought was very pleasurable, actually. Then we have Higher High High, which was preceded by some of Paul's infamous cringe-worthy crowd work, something we addressed in the interview. 
Then we closed out on a trilogy of I Saw Her Standing There, which Paul performed in the 1999 Cavern gig also. The Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band reprise. It does exactly what it says on the tin, even in 2020. What more can be said about it? And we cap it off with Helter Skelter. And Paul Dugdale really was right when he said that this was the track that was going to be the the real belter. Because it was. It's crazy that McCartney still has the power to absolutely melt the faces off an audience in the way that he does here. And it was a fantastic end to the show. Apparently... Queenie Eye and 4-5 Seconds were advertised or reported as being on the set list, but sadly, they were not performed. In terms of the cut tracks, I do have to stick to my word and call out Paul Dugdale for his cutting of Confidant and Come On To Me. Like, I would gladly have cut Jet uh, or Birthday for either of those two. Like, it would have been fair if they had cut all of the Egypt Station stuff, but... You know, we've 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 already got Who Cares and For You on film, and yet I get that no one at the, at the BBC is going to give a flying fuck about Confidant, and that if things we said today wasn't going to make it, then this certainly wasn't going to make the cut. But I just hope that there's going to be some sort of official, uncut DVD release of this, in, you know, to include this song or. Fuck it, put it on Paul's YouTube page, get the ad revenue off it that way. Just please, Paul, give us Confidant Live. The completionist in all of us is crying out for it. Just one thing before we start wrapping up. We don't actually see, sadly, any of the footage of Paul chastising the audience, like Paul said. Uh, But it was funny for me that they couldn't work around the issue entirely, as Paul does reference the phones issue in one of the intros for one of the later songs. So, you know, they couldn't totally erase it from us. And it was a nice little nod for anyone in the know. Overall, folks, got to say, though, really pleased to report on how fucking good this live show was. I was originally planning on, you know, having it as part of the big McCartney 3 summary episode, like I said. But um, once I knew that I was going to be speaking with Paul Dugdale, I knew I had to put it as part of this episode. It all, you know, it, it all makes sense. But once I knew I was going to do that, I started panicking. I did. Because there was a chance that I wasn't going to like it. And I'd either have an awkward final episode where I slag off my wonderful guest after we have a nice chat, or I'd have to compromise my own integrity a little bit. But fortunately, for everyone involved, including you, the listener, and you, the Paul McCartney fan, this is genuinely a fantastic concert film. It boasts latter-day era Paul at his on-stage peak. The band are top quality as ever, and... Most importantly, as far as we're concerned today, Paul is shot and presented and shown to be the badass live act that he still is. This concert film sells Paul perfectly, and it's a wonderful time capsule of a very important part of his career. All in all, success, two thumbs up, four stars, eight out of ten cats, 85% if you want to get technical about it. If you haven't already, I suggest you go back and check it out, because you're going to love it. A splendid times guaranteed for all. Thank you very much, folks, for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. This this episode has been a lot longer than I thought it was going to be, especially the opening part. Hopefully, I've remembered to put a timestamp somewhere for people who want to skip all of that malarkey. But yeah, I hope you have enjoyed this episode, folks. Another little exclusive for us here on Paul or Nothing. Who knows? Hopefully, we'll be having Charlie Lightning on the show to confirm all of these stories. Who knows? 
Anyway, if you did enjoy the, enjoy the show, why not let me know? Email in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought of Paul McCartney Ellipses live at the Cavern Club 2018. Do you agree or disagree with my thoughts on this album? What did you think of my chat with Paul Dugdale? Do you have any questions for him that I could maybe follow up on? Do let me know. You can also do that via the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube simply by typing in Paul McCartney Pod or Paul or Nothing. If you want to be really nice, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Podbean, Podomatic, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever streaming service you are using. If you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. And last but certainly not least, if you want to help out the show, if you want to see us grow, if you want to help keep the lights running, or, you know, maybe you just want to throw a few quid my way for saying thanks because you've just enjoyed the show that fucking much, please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family on Patreon and chuck a couple of dollars a month at the show down the internet every month. I'm sure Daniel Aynes will be playing this out for a while. Keep listening to Paul. Keep listening to McCarthy 3. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry Krishna. Stay safe, everyone. No more autographs. Play us out then. One, two, three, four. I'm gonna be